This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Everybody, and welcome to Blackballed. Um, for people that watch the show, every time I do uh, a new intro for a new guest, I try to pick something that um, I try to fuse something to hip hop and I try to make it relevant <coughs> to the uh, to the guest. And um, when I lived in the beaches, this is so convoluted, but when I lived in the beaches, my wife was pregnant and um, the Scotiabank Marathon was happening. And she was like nine months pregnant and I couldn't get to my house. The cop was just like, I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do. So I associate the beaches with car horns. And then, so that's why, that's why I chose that instrumental for our next guest. He's the liberal MP for beaches, East York. And I voted for him the first time he was elected. Cause that was my writing. He is Nathaniel Erskine Smith. Nathaniel, Nate, what's up, buddy? How are you? Things are good. Yeah. I can't really complain. Although we've got a bit of a, covid impacted household at the moment my two-year-old got it a week and a half ago then my wife got it then i got it my five-year-old got it everyone's healthy everyone's good but it has meant that week one the two-year-old and five-year-old were both off of daycare and school then my two-year-old's back my five-year-old is off of school and then next week's march break so the magic of juggling work with uh myself and my wife has been its own its own challenge but uh not a challenge that i think is dissimilar from the challenge so many have faced so is what it is yeah you know i keep on hearing that children are right now the most vulnerable so you know when your kids are sick when they're two and five my kids are five and seven i worry like no other human being does about my kids i don't know why that is but like i'm not you know known as a worry wart most of the time although i'm sure there's people laughing when i say that but when it comes to my kids yeah that must have been tough like i mean you you have to put on a strong face so they don't get upset but then as soon as the door closes you're like holy fuck my kid's sick like (laughs) i would be crawling Yeah, we we were lucky they they weren't they weren't overly sick they've been sicker from from other things we also were lucky mac my five-year-old has two doses so we were reasonably confident that he wasn't gonna be too sick so you never know with younger kids so yeah there's always a stress as a parent, there's always a stress no matter what. They're yeah. crossing the street, there's a stress. You're walking on a busy street, there's a stress. So, yeah. you know, I, in the end, we're all we're all good. Parents of teenagers are listening to this going, just you wait. <laughs> just you <guys laughs> yeah, wait. exactly. Yeah, although this morning I was like, my five-year-old is talking to me like he's a teenager. He's going like, whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. My daughter does that. She's five, too. I didn't, 
that's so funny that you say that because I didn't um, discover the magic of the word whatever. And it felt like magic at the time until I was in like grade seven. And uh, my, my friend, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, my friend Ed Kitchen just dismissed this other friend of ours and just went, whatever. And I was like, wow. What well, a when my five-year-old says something like that, the parents are, I'm looking at my wife, my wife's looking at me and we're like, who taught him that? Was it you? Was it me? Who taught him that? You know who it was? Shimmer and Shine. That's exactly who it was. That's what they say. They, they use vernacular like that. Um, I'm glad I have you here because there was, um, you know, we're, we're a couple of weeks or whatever out from the convoy protest. And um, that protest tied in so many things together that were good and bad. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of them was um, the the kind of way that we were speaking about each other at the time, the, the dismissiveness that people had about basically all of the protesters. And I understand there were certain problematic protesters, clearly. Um, but I, I heard you on the podcast, The House, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. And... Uh, if I may uh, read a quote, it's, you said, if we are so fearful of polarization, we have to be especially careful not to contribute to it ourselves. I think the context that you were talking about was um, was government messaging, maybe, or just language coming out of politics. But that is a good lesson for all of us to learn. And I think, do you think that the convoy, for all of the negative stuff that may have been associated with the convoy, do you think that there was a big lesson that we had an opportunity to learn based on how we interacted with each other based on that convoy? I think so. The line you just quoted was a line I actually gave in my speech on the Emergencies Act in the House of Commons. And I directed many comments actually at my conservative colleagues, because I, I do think that we are judged by the company we keep. And I worried about conservative colleagues in particular, not all, but some conservative colleagues emboldening the lawlessness that we saw, I think, in, a, in an unfortunate and problematic way. And so I called that out. But then at the same time, I also said, and for those on my side of the house, if we're so fearful of polarization, we ought to be especially careful we don't contribute to ourselves. And I think that is true. And I think the lesson here for all of us, and Michelle Rempel had a good, good article about the World Economic Forum conspiracy theory the other day. You know, Charlie Angus has been banging away on disinformation for a long time. And, and I think the lesson for all of us, and we see it, is we have a, a special responsibility when we are members of parliament, when we occupy positions of influence and, and authority and people look to us, you know, disregard us in many cases, but still we, we have standing in a way that, that not everyone has. And we ought to be careful about how we exercise that standing. Yeah, uh, you're right. It was about the Emergencies Act. Um, and that um, it's funny how it can be applied to almost everything now, though. Any any type of situation that we seem to find ourselves in, whether it's a wedge issue or just a social issue or something, the polarization sort of... Um, veneer seems to seems to climb all over us and and we end up in our camps um we hear keywords and, that the other and we're yeah, saying though james on that conservative colleagues like adam chambers you mentioned the house adam chambers was a conservative colleague mm -hmm. who was on the same program another colleague eric from the conservative side he gave a good speech about you know people are suggesting that the prime minister is somehow a threat to Canada and, 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 and a traitor, and we can't use language like that, right? That he's the prime minister of Canada. I, I might disagree with the, the policies he's putting in place, but he's still the prime minister of Canada, and, yeah. and we have to respect that. And and so I, I think you are hearing lessons learned and voices from, from all sides of the spectrum that we all need to, we all have a special responsibility, and we all need to take the take the tone down in, in many respects. And, and, and that language of traitor actually really bothers me because it, it's we have seen it south of the border, but we've seen it in the course of the convoy. We we saw it creep 
into Canada and the language of the Nuremberg Code and like all of that nonsense, I think is really destructive because it does suggest this level of criminality that is unbecoming of our politics, but more than that is destructive of our politics. I think if we want to get things done ultimately in the best interest of Canadians. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that it was an interesting contrast to see people refer to Prime Minister Trudeau as a traitor. And then the next day, watch Vladimir Putin really show us what a tyrant is, right? Like it's not, it's, it's not enough for us to be able to say, I disagree with you. And don't get me wrong, I, I don't agree with some of the um, things that Justin Trudeau has said. I have found some of the things that he said divisive. But, you know, like people people make mistakes or whatever. Maybe he doesn't think it was a mistake. That's not really the point. To, to call someone a tyrant for um, for invoking the Emergencies Act, which I also didn't agree with, it's just the bridge too far. Like, we have to start being able to, like, you know, get our bearings as to what it is um, that we're doing when we use language like that. Like, that that's the kind of incitement language that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I associate mostly with south of the border. And there's a part of me that is kind of not frightened, but concerned that we are slowly heading in a trajectory not dissimilar from south of the border. I don't want it to happen, obviously. As a person in media, um, one day I'll write an article criticizing Justin Trudeau and, and you know, <clears throat> I'll be called like a Nazi. The next day I'll write an article criticizing Pierre Poilevé and I'll be called a libtard. And, and I'm just, when is that going to end? And why is it here even? Like, wh what, what have we done to ourselves? Please tell me how to fix ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there's any easy fix. I, I think you're going to have people criticize you and like people are very, they're one click away from sending a nasty message to a politician they don't like or a public figure they don't like. That's going to continue, unfortunately, but it is what it is. I think the worry is when you start to see that language ramped up in positions like my own or positions of those who hold the government and, and, and ministerial positions or those who might occupy those positions one day. And so when I had conservative colleagues that were sending me notes after my speech on the Emergencies Act, I also disagreed with the way the government invoked it. And I was at least skeptical of the grounds and threshold for the government to invoke it. I certainly at the time of the vote didn't think that we needed the measures and that they continued to be necessary and proportionate in response to the circumstances as of the Monday that we were voting. But conservative colleagues sent me a note and said, great speech. My response back was to say, thanks. And you have a really special responsibility to make sure that your party holds the center in the leadership race. Because I do think we, if we allow, and we, if we're talking south of the border, what happened here was you had a very small number of people that are members of parties that participate in primaries or nominations. And if you allow a certain set of interests to hijack that process, or those small number of people aren't going to represent the broader conservative movement or the broader liberal movement. If you allow these big tent parties to be hijacked in that way, it's a problem for all of us. Yeah. And it's being framed oftentimes as a, um, as a <clears throat> society being just anti-conservative, like um, the, the convoy thing, actually, I just want to circle back to that just for a second, because I, I feel like there's like an opportunity that we all have here and it's through no fault of some heroic act, but they were there for three weeks. Um, I don't like to use the word occupy because it's just, that's too militaristic, but they squatted basically on Parliament Hill with their big trucks for a few they weeks. They were blockades. They were blocking streets. They were yep. blocking borders, blocking streets. Yep. And we were somehow, and I don't know who this is a testament to, but and we'll deal with that in a second because it's actually a lot more, more complex. We, we were able to get out of that period of time without injuries 
to protest without cops injuring anyone, without cops getting injured, without any deaths, which I, I think is actually in this day and age probably um, a huge you know achievement in, in a way, especially for how long they were there, especially how vitriolic it was. Will future protests, given the um, the way the Ottawa police handled it, and and never mind their motivation for why they handled it the way they did, but because there was no injuries and they were there for so long, I'm just sort of curious and I'm cautiously optimistic what will happen when an environmentalist protest happens or a Black Lives Matter protest happens. Will police look to Ottawa as a way to say to themselves, hey, we don't need to like bash skulls in order to, you know, make sure that this crowd doesn't get out of hand. And I'm not saying they even did that on purpose because I, I, I feel like a lot of people think they didn't do that because the protest was white for lack of better way of saying it. But is there an opportunity here to sort of treat future protests with a lighter hand? I don't have a great answer other than my own view of the situation. And my view is removed as yours is. I mean, I don't have the on the ground intelligence of why they acted when they acted at a particular moment in time. But I see what you see, which is the police acted very differently towards this protest than we've seen with respect to other protests in respect of other movements and movements where people have been of color. And so that is incredibly problematic. And that does, I think, undermine trust in institutions in its own way. So if we were to learn lessons here, I think the, the, the lessons are twofold. One is the police have to act much more quickly, that the abdication of responsibility of the local police in this situation emboldened similar protests and copycat protests elsewhere across the country. The border blockades, the illegal blockades were particularly problematic and, and damaging to our economy and our country. And so, and, and that really is what I think got the federal government to, to jump as it did. And federal leadership was warranted because of the lack of, of local and, and provincial leadership. So on the one hand, you need to police, you need to enforce the law full stop, right? That's, that's the first set of lessons, I think. And we can't, we can't allow that kind of law to be emboldened. But the second piece to your point is to say when we are enforcing the law to do so in such a way that we aren't going to see violent clashes. And, you know, in the Toronto context, I will say the most recent clash that I remember seeing through, uh, through our politics at the local level, at least, they were clearing, you know, homeless people and, and allies from encampments. That was more violent than clearing people who were talking about, you know, comically in some ways, but talking about overthrowing the government of Canada, that, that, that makes no sense when you look at the, the differential treatment. So to your point, yeah, should, should lessons be learned? Yes. Am I a police officer knowing exactly what those lessons ought to be in terms of how they are to be applied? No, but, but I think your, mm. your general point is a sound one. Neither of us are police officers, but I dare say if someone saw a freeze frame of this show right now, I don't know if they would pick you as the politician. I'm just <laughs> throwing that out there. <laughs> Yeah, that's I'm probably right. I, I, although I was, I was on a call yesterday and someone <laughs> said, oh, I, I appreciate how you dressed down. I was like, there's no active intent here. I'm just trying to make <laughs> life work with kids and work. And so, no, that's we totally are. as we were, I was saying to Nate off air um, that, um, you know, that I wore, I, I wore my, I wear a suit jacket whenever I, ha I interview a politician. And I was like, all right, Nate's usually dressed to the T. So I'm going to, and then I opened it up and I was like, I guess he's painting the spare bedroom today. <laughs> Something like that. Dressed, no, but it's most good. of my colleagues would not think I'm usually dressed to the T. So. Yeah. Well, Hey, listen, <clears throat> most of your, well, no, I won't go there. Um, but 
you have been now been You're talking to uh, someone who, by the way, like I got up at one point in the House of Commons to speak and I got cut off because I didn't have a tie. And then others made it into like, oh, and I think we should change the dress code. Don't get me wrong. And others made it into that. But I was like, I just forgot to wear a tie. This is not like a, it wasn't a protest. the system moment. I just literally forgot. Man, he's such a maverick. Look at him stick it to the government again. <laughs> That that's I mean you've been known as that since you started and you're probably really bored of um of of you know being told that you're the the maverick in the house. I wanted to uh, to just clarify something though because you said I think it was on that same podcast it could have been another interview um about uh, about your commitment to Canadians was that you would uh, and and Trudeau's commitment to the party when he ran the first time was to say everyone's going to have an open vote except for when it comes to confidence matters um and you said on the house that you you made a commitment to Canadians to abide by confidence matters and that's why you voted to invoke the emergencies act because it was tied in with uh, a confidence vote can you explain to people like that have no idea what any of that shit is like what a confidence yeah. vote is why it was tied in to the emergencies act invocation and, and and why do governments do that okay so a few different things one if you track back to justin trudeau's leadership before he became the leader and then certainly before he became, became the prime minister he committed to this idea of empowering parliamentarians and as part of that commitment he promised freer votes and then that became part of our election platform in 2015 and the idea was to empower parliamentarians and it was a little bit as against the context of stephen harper who was seen as a more domineering you know tightly controlled caucus kind of prime minister so the promise was to basically say members like me, members of parliament representing Beaches East York would be free to vote on behalf of Beaches East York. And to be the line that I think the prime minister used at the time was we're going to be the voices of our communities in Ottawa and not the voice of Ottawa in our communities, that kind of idea. And specifically, it meant that on platform promises, votes would be whipped on confidence matters typically budget matters, but on confidence matters, they would be whipped. And then human rights and charter rights issues, the idea being if there was a bill to prohibit abortion, then it would be a whip vote and we would be we would have to vote with the with the government and with the Liberal Party. And so other other than that, and there are many other issues beyond those three those three elements, we would be uh, we would be free to, to vote our conscience and vote on behalf of our constituents. And those three make good sense because on the one hand, and, and let's deal with the first two principally, but because on the one hand, it's about implementing platform promises. I don't agree with every promise we make, but I'm there as a liberal part of a team and I'm knocking on your door, James, and I'm saying, here are the promises we're making and, and keeping one's promise in politics is incredibly important. So whipping those votes makes a good deal of sense. On confidence matters, there it's a, it's not there aren't as clear rules in parliament in some ways there's a there's a bit of uh, vagueness to it but but principally the government can deem anything to be a confidence matter if it so chooses and the idea is there's a dual aspect of the vote then you're not only voting on the substance of the issue before you you're voting as to whether you have confidence in the government to continue to govern and if a go if a government loses a confidence vote and some matters are deemed to be confidence so if a government were to lose a vote to implement its budget we would be thrown into an election it would be deemed that the house would have said we no longer have confidence in this government now May, may not be an election. You would have maybe other parties that would be given the opportunity to form government instead in the course of the chamber, but otherwise we're thrown into an election. And in this case, the government's deemed it to be, and, and I, there were some, you know, there were some commentators who said, well, obviously this is akin to a confidence vote because this is such a substantive issue before us. My own personal view is that it didn't need to be a confidence vote because when you look at the issue, we weren't actually vote, voting to invoke the Emergencies Act. 
the effect of our vote on that particular evening was whether the measures would continue beyond that evening. And so my articulation was to say, whatever I think about the invocation, we can debate whether the thresholds are met. I certainly think federal action was was warranted. So we can we can debate about whether the invocation was warranted. But on a going forward basis, I don't think the measures are necessary. So that's how I sort of was coming to my vote. But in by making it a confidence matter, and I was very clear about this, my disagreement did not amount to no confidence, right, or non-confidence. So just simply because I disagree with the government on this issue, because it was a confidence vote, I continue to have confidence in the government to govern. And and when we look at what's happening in Ukraine, which you, you've referenced as against the convoy already in terms of drawing that contrast, I mean, I would draw the contrast there too. I certainly disagree with the government any number of occasions, but am I confident in this government to continue to govern? And Ukraine's a really good example. I think they've stepped to the table in a really serious way, and they've shown that they're confident on the world stage and, and when we have a really serious and pressing international issue or or any issue, frankly, in front of us. And so I, you know, I can disagree, and I will express that disagreement. Usually I will vote my conscience or vote on behalf of my constituents as a way of expressing that disagreement. This is the only time, I think, outside of budget matters that I recall there may have been others but this is the, the the only time i recall voting with the government as a matter of confidence where i actually disagreed on an issue and i've been doing this for six years so yeah you abstain when you disagree normally don't you like when there's other no. things at play you what did no, you abstain no, no, was it bill c10 i don't remember what it was but you abstained on a vote recently in the yeah last six there's somewhere so. i abstain usually i will vote uh differently than the government though i abstentions are only where I think the issue is a little bit more complicated and isn't as clear cut to vote for or against. And, and so a, an abstention I will have done, uh, uh, you know, in a small number of cases, usually I'll, I'll vote differently and I'll make sure there's a clear record of it. Is it, is it difficult in a party system to navigate those waters between loyalty to constituents and I don't want to say loyalty to party because it sounds bad, but you know what I mean? Like to your colleagues, to people that want to rely on you, like to, to, to traverse those waters sometimes must be like, like there must be meetings sometimes where like, fuck, how's Nate going to vote on this one? <laughs> Is it going to be bad press for us again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably have taken up too much oxygen of people who are like, fucking Nate. But I, I, in other, in other cases, I, I think I've been a great ally. So, you know, look, if we, first met, and I think this is true of, of any relationship, and you don't know someone and, and you can't judge someone based on your first or early interactions. And so when I first got to Parliament and my colleagues didn't necessarily know who I was and, and, and know enough about me and, and know the full picture, and they saw me disagreeing on occasion, I think there was a little bit of a who does this guy think he is and what's he all about? And I, I certainly had even constituents that were, would reach out who are the hardest of hardcore liberals saying, are you a liberal? <laughs> and, you know, so, so that that happens, that, that certainly happened. I think over time, though, they see the fuller picture and that, you know, I've gone to bat for the party on any number of occasions. I've, you know, the, the liberals that are emailing me from my community, I can easily come back and say, look, I've fundraised for the party. I've, I've raised, I've, I've, you know, make sure we have volunteers, not only in my riding, but I've, I've helped other ridings. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to bat for the party in a serious way on any number of occasions, and then including defending the party on any, any number of occasions, on any number of issues. Like, so when we get attacked for our climate action, I'll say, yeah, there are ways we can improve it. But I can tell you, we have moved the needle massively from 2015 to where we are today. And we've, we've moved the needle more than any other country in my lifetime. And I think most countries around the world, and that's something we should be proud of, not, you know, not rest on our laurels, but we should be proud of that. And we should keep pushing. So I think there are, I think over time, they, you know, does it still 
bother people when I disagree, probably in some ways. I think how we disagree really matters as well. And so uh, my own view has been make it about the ideas, make it about the issues and this, don't make it personal. And so as much as possible, concretely, you know, I did this about the emergency act. I explained my rationale over the course of 10 minutes. And does everyone agree? No. Uh, do, do people generally see me as someone who will give a, the government a hard time, focus on the ideas and, and otherwise be a, a pretty significant supporter? I hope so. Is there anything in hindsight with the invocation of the Emergencies Act that made you say, oh, you know what, that that aspect there may have helped? Yes, I think, well, the police officers on the ground saying that it helped, I think, is evidence of that, whether you take, you know, take that with a grain of salt in some ways, but there, that's that's its own evidence in, at the same time. Is that enough, though? I would say not how I read the act, right? So the the test isn't whether this is going to be effective or efficient or will help the test is whether this amounted to effectively terror you know activities akin to terrorism on the one hand and on the second hand whether the measures were necessary and proportionate to the problem at hand right and so uh, different people will answer those questions differently i i acknowledge i didn't have full information but the one worry i did have about just the continuing measures and, and look the act when we look at the border blockades in particular, that was closer to, I think, an emergency threshold. When you look at the continuing blockades in, in Ottawa, and, and the question here, if we're really going to get into the legal weeds, but it's around this question of violence. So there were threats of violence. There was, you know, violence and then threats of violence, and especially when you look at coots and the conspiracy to commit murder charges. But there were, you know, there were really threatening acts towards people just because they were wearing masks on the street ludicrously. There, there are all sorts of things you could point to and say, this is intimidating, this is harassment, these are really problematic. And I have no sympathy for any of that. Did it amount to threats of violence, which, and those threats of violence, by the way, have to themselves constitute the emergency? And my own view is it was the blockades that constitute the emergency. And I don't read economic harm to mean activities akin to violence. And, and the reason I worried about that is it, it, the precedent setting in some ways, right? Like if economic harm is akin to violence such that we can invoke these measures, then we could have invoked these measures around the Wet'suwet'en, the railway blockades in support of the Wet'suwet'en. So, and is that something we would have wanted to see? I, I think these are just challenging questions that, that decision makers have to grapple with. And, and so was it useful and effective? Yeah, it probably was useful. Um, I, I find that the brazenness coupled with low information um, people, <laughs> really fascinating because I remember growing up and there was like the TV is the boob tube, it's going to rot your mind. And then they did studies and they talked about attention span and things like that. And there was um, data to suggest that too much television was bad for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then video games, it's kind of the same thing. People become isolated. People become um you know introverted and and they don't want to leave the house and they are addicted to video games and then the internet came along and the internet sort of had a combination of those two things does social media do you think do you think we're going to see one day this is just a total hypothetical like a, <clears throat> an, almost a nothing question but i find it interesting <laughs> i wonder i wonder if we're going to find one that's always a that, good way to preface your question <laughs> well because i'm I, I as i'm saying it i'm like there's literally nothing to back up what you're saying right now but however, it's it's fun to think. Um, and the brazenness in which certain people operate. And I'm wondering if that is like um, a bastard child of social media because we have gone backwards <clears throat> in a lot of ways when it comes to things like bullying. We, we have all these amazing bullying campaigns on the very platform where all of the bullying happens. <laughs> and I'm just 
there's all these contradictions that I'm seeing, and I'm just I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that we we have a problem with um with people not checking themselves. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's because you're allowed to be anonymous on Twitter and things like that still, or what the reason is. But I am kind of concerned about um, what it is doing to the prospect of an electorate who can be just more civil. I think there are huge challenges to the way we use social media, the way we interact with one another, the way that people speak to one another online in a way that they would never speak to one another in person. Um, I think there are huge challenges to our politics as a result of that. The social media challenges are complicated to a great degree because they're also complicated by people actively intending to spread disinformation to use these platforms to basically hijack the algorithms of the platforms and to uh, and to disrupt things in that way as well. And so, I, I think the real question is how do you drive at an answer in light of the fact that there are free speech issues obviously at play here too. And and so how do you make sure that we encourage the platforms to embrace an ethics that they haven't embraced to date. And we saw before social media platforms, you had broadcasters and broadcasters, there was an ethics to broadcasting, you know, what everyone thinks of, and you know, not every broadcaster, when you certainly look south of the border and we could point to Fox news or everyone's probably got their one that they might point to, but um, you know, there are standards that obviously I would say are not always met even in that world, but yeah. there are in, in Canada, we have a broadcasting standards council and certain standards are set. The large players do try to abide by basic standards. And I don't think you see that same conversation evolve in the same way as it ought to in the case of social media in fits and starts. We've seen it, but it's been in fits and starts in, in part because you've had really public criticism and really public embarrassment of some of these social media platforms that has forced them to act. It shouldn't take that kind of embarrassment and scrutiny from horrible mistakes. And, and the, the worst one is when, you know, there was, we can talk about civility, but let's talk about real harms where we look at what happened with in Myanmar with uh, genocide and you have Facebook itself acknowledged through an, a report that itself commissioned that the Facebook platform uh, amplified that hate, right? So how do you how do you address those problems? And I think one way of doing so is, and I'm quite interested in, is the EU has been ahead of us on privacy issues, GDPR, and been ahead of us already on those. They're currently examining a proposal around the, they call the Digital Services Act, but as part of it, it would basically say to very large platforms, you have an obligation to perform risk assessments and to basically I, do your own internal audits of how your platform is operating and, and whether it is contributing in a, in a problematic way and, and creating risks in a series of areas, including around disinformation of uh, intentional automated disinformation, including in relation to illegal content and more. And so I think that's a useful way of kind of driving out a solution where they've basically said companies do a risk assessment. You have then an independent third party that can audit that risk assessment and and the companies are obligated then to remediate the risks. And so I don't know exactly where we're going to land in Canada, but I think we should have a much more constructive conversation about solutions and, and look to some of the ideas elsewhere around the world. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. 
4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah, I mean, that would be smart. You've been outspoken. I saw you, I think it was a committee hearing talking to Facebook executives. Was that like a year and a half ago or something like that? Um, uh, yeah, we, we did a deep dive a number of years ago into Cambridge Analytica, and we've been sort of vocal on the subject ever since, I, both in Canada, but also there's a an international kind of effort, a collaboration among parliaments, and I've been involved in that as well. And I don't, did you see The Social Dilemma, the documentary? I did. With all of the ex-social um, media people. The one thing that I found interesting about that, um, I haven't heard much of a conversation about people talking about why can't Twitter and Facebook, mostly Twitter though, why can't they get rid of bots? Why can't they just ban bots? Because <laughs> bots are the ones that are used to fan the flames of division so that people can get angry and they can contribute more to the platform. Why, why do they, why, has anyone ever thought of that, thought of maybe seeing if, the, if it's even, first of all, if it's even possible and if it's not possible, why not? Like, I mean, this might be above your pay grade, but since you've done that deep dive, was, is that something that ever came up? Yeah, oh, definitely. So a few different proposals. You've got some proposals that are straight bans. You've got other proposals that would be, uh, they call them sort of Blade Runner laws. It would at least I'd, I'd force them to identify the bots in a clear fashion or to ensure that the bots don't contribute to the amplification and don't mm -hmm. play the same role in, in, in terms of algorithmic impacts. And then the, the DSA proposal from the EU that I was just referencing, they talk about the intentional manipulation of their service, including by inauthentic use or automated exploitation. I mean, what they're talking about is bots, right, in a, in a serious way. So this is 100% an active part of the conversation and what other countries are looking at in terms of how do we solve some of these challenges. And, and they're definitely looking at the problems of automated and, and intentional man manipulation, which in, in includes bots. Yeah, it, it's something that I think about all the time. I think of the algorithm. I think, I think like one time we did a podcast on the Dean Blundell show and we interviewed a person who was an anti-vaxxer um, she was, uh, I think she worked for the same company as, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. It was a civil discussion. We disagreed with her vehemently, but we did it in a way that was nice, but we still got our video pulled because the algorithm thought that we were promoting, um, false information about vaccines. So algorithms don't seem to be the answer, but they're so huge. Like these companies that I don't know how you even do like a beta testing for trying to confirm um, information being factual when when its algorithms are just taking like it's dragnetting everything and too bad if you were spreading good information 
Well, so that's the knock-on challenge to this, right? Where you want to make sure that, and we can get into some of the conversation we've had in the Canadian context too, but you want to make sure that there is a public process to this as well, because are we comfortable with private sector entities that obviously their motivation is profit? Are we comfortable with allowing them to police public rules? So if we're going to impose some rules here to say, this is the importance of independent audits, but it's also when it comes to content moderation systems, if we're going to ask private sector companies to apply public laws about taking down content that is already illegal, not creating new laws around speech, but just saying they're obviously illegal content that is you are allowing on your platform today, and let's make sure you're, you have a more active effort to take it down, then the a lot of smart people will say, and I think the overwhelming uh, literature that exists will say, there's the knock-on challenges. You're going to have, you know, the companies that will take down too much because then their incentive is to take material down, and then are, and you want to make sure, I think, that you have a public due process. You have a system of, of public due process that would ensure that people can challenge the decisions that are made, and that where content is not taken down that should be taken down, then there's a there's an avenue there. But also where content is taken down that ought not to have been taken down, that there's an avenue there as well. Yeah. Um. I mean. I feel like there's going to be another beat Bill C-10 sort of down the road. Um, I, there I he hope is. That... Bill C-11. Oh, God. oh, shit. But, 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 but James, but James, yeah. the... Yes. Speak to me, The user-generated content issue has disappeared. So you you should be pleased to know, I, I think, that the government listened, the government learned, and the government then acted in accordance with, with those lessons, and they ensured that the user-generated content piece as was, you know, as people were angsting about and worried about and, and criticizing, that is off the table. Now, the knock-on debate is around, and this is where I abstained, actually, but the knock-on debate is around the question of amplifying Canadian content and what does that look like in the hands of the CRTC and this idea of, look, we want to, do we want to promote Canadian content? I would say yes, but then what does that look like in the course of, in the CRTC's hands with, with vague rules and I think requiring some clarity about what, um, what do we mean when we're asking services to highlight Canadian content? Is it as simple as Netflix having a top Canadian movies list? Okay, that seems perfectly fine and inoffensive and they should have that, that's fine. Doesn't mean that Spotify is going to, you know, 30% of its recommendations to you after you finish your playlist are going to be Canadian. I don't know. Do we want them playing with the algorithm in that way? I, I would say maybe not. So, you know, that's um, discoverability is, I think, the open question in the CRTC's hands and where some criticism still lies. But the user generated content, the big flash point of a debate, that is not one we're going to have in this parliament. That's off the table. And that's been, I think, rectified in a serious way. So the user generation uh, generated content off the table. So what about the rules about like the Dean Blundell network? Like he, that wouldn't be a user generated content because it's an actual network of podcasts. Would we be in this Bill C-11 um, under the same rules when it comes to things like profanity? Or is that like not, they're not going to go there as well? Because th this is the stuff that we were hearing. I don't know time. that. I would hope not. Yeah. But, but yeah. I, I, the, the, open, the open question would be around, I think, uh, the... The context of the bill, the core purpose of the bill is require Canadian streaming services to pay into a system of Canadian content creation and basically an echo of the existing system to say, as we've always had it, 
broadcasters had to pay into this system for Canadian content creation. Now these are the modern broadcasting equivalents, so we're going to make them to pay into the system of Canadian content creation. And Maybe they should only pay when they are a certain size. Well, so you this know? is the CRTC is tasked with coming up with these rules. And look, the rules, are they going to be entirely reasonable in the hands of the CRTC? I would say we need more innovative leadership. We could talk about that. Ian Scott came to my committee and, you know... <laughs> I, I was, I was just going to say, if, this, if, the CR, yeah, if the CRTC disappeared overnight, meh. But, <laughs> like, but, would we be that but, upset? Yeah. But I mean, I think reasonably when we look at these rules, I, I don't think we're going to see small players that are getting squeezed. And I don't think we're going to see discoverability rules that are problematic. But I also yeah. think we should be clear up front about what the rules are, are going to be. And, and I don't know that the CRTC is best placed to be the one writing these rules after giving them general direction. You know, it's funny. I don't use YouTube that much anymore um, because of the algorithm. I used to think the, I, I don't know, like four years ago, five years ago, I thought the, the algorithm actually served my interest. And now I feel like the algorithm serves the interest of the broadcaster that they're, they're, they're putting on the top of their discoverability list in the algorithm. And so I, I'm like, I'm kind of done with YouTube. Like I get content. Like if I want to find a video now, instead of going to YouTube, I'll go to Twitter. I'll search it on Twitter. I'll find it there and I'll just watch it there. Because if I want to go down a rabbit hole, I find I can't do it anymore um, because the algorithm isn't speaking to me. It's speaking to the broadcasters. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't, I'm not as familiar with, as a YouTube user. I just never have been a big YouTube user myself. I... I'm a pretty active Twitter user, so I, I hear you on that. I I think it's just, a, you know, I used to be a more active Facebook user. I think this is the trajectory of, of social media as far as it goes. People should, you know, look at valuations in, in a very, I think, skeptical way sometimes, knowing what we know about MSN Messenger. But, yeah. you know, um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, like in terms of the recommendation functions and how they operate, the only thing I will say is, YouTube has been, in my experience at committee at least, Google and YouTube, they they have pushed back at different times. But and I would include Twitter in this. Facebook has was really the one that was most frustrating at our committee. They've all been frustrating in their own ways. But uh, Google and YouTube, in terms of taking down content that obviously should be taken down and committing to trying to address misinformation in the course of the pandemic whether they live up to those commitments is a different thing, but they've mm -hmm. at least, you know, been more vocal about, about doing the right thing in that regard. Um, we have uh, a few minutes left. I just wanted to play a clip from you uh, from, I think it was four years ago. No, maybe five or six years ago. But um, it, when I, when I, I interviewed Trudeau in January, 2012, I guess he was what a year and a half, two years still away from becoming leader. And I'm very proud of this moment because I had a half ounce of weed in my pocket when I interviewed him and I could smell it every time I put the microphone to him and I was just in my own private glory because I was interviewing him about the legalization of marijuana, which at the time he was kind of on the fence. Um, and then it was legalized, but this was you back then. Hold on. <clears throat> sort of silly for me to stop now, wouldn't it? Mm. So, so you do consume and you intend to continue consuming? Yeah, just as someone might have a glass of wine or a scotch on a Friday night. I would turn to my vaporizer and I have Crohn's, so sometimes I turn to it for that reason as well. Well, look, there's uh, five years from now, no one will be interested in this question. 
because we'll all recognize we're responsible adults and this is far less harmful than alcohol, far less harmful than tobacco and we should use it responsibly, yes, because there are potential harms, but certainly Canadians are, are capable of doing this because we've been doing it for decades. Everything you said. I was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it turns out you were absolutely right about that. Um, and 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 good. Like the one thing that I will give this government. I mean, this government's done done a few things that I like. Um, one of them is certainly legalization. I don't think they did the legalization correctly, but whatever. Like I, I don't have to worry about you know getting busted for having you know weed in, on my person if I'm walking back from the store or something. And and wow, what like I never thought I would. Honestly, I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. I always thought it would just be one of those you know reefer madness nations for the rest of our lives but we have a new one now um what i would say is is probably even more important um at least in the um in the sense of therapy and that's psilocybin which is the key ingredient in magic mushrooms um full disclosure i am a very um big magic mushrooms enthusiast um <clears throat> i travel to outer space outer space twice a month just as a reset I really do. I know a lot of people that uh, microdose it um, and, and their, their lives have become like one guy I know that had a really bad, like half ape all a day Coke habit. <clears throat> and he started doing psilocybin microdoses and he hasn't even been tempted. It's been like two and a half years. Um, the benefits of this, and this is all kind of like reminding me of the weed argument because the benefits of psilocybin is kind of still unknown because they weren't allowed until recently um, to even use it in a lab just to see what the effects would be um, via long-term studies. Have you thought about this issue that much? And, um, and is there anything that's happening in the government right now that would make a person like me feel confident moving forward about what's going to happen with psilocybin and my magic mushrooms? I have thought about this a considerable amount. I don't know how confident what I will say will make you, but let's see how it goes. So... On the one hand, we have seen some progress. So I was a, one of a small number of liberal MPs that was pushing for expanded access. We initially started people near the end of their life. The idea was very simple. If people near the end of their life in uh, palliative context could access assisted dying, surely they could access psilocybin. And that was met with, I think, a positive response from the health minister at the time, Minister Haidu. And so applications were granted. We then moved to... There was a big push from those who seek to provide the the help to say, I'm a health professional, um, a psychiatrist, and I want to make sure that I have a familiarity with the substance itself. So as a matter of training with the substance, and we were able to secure some amendments in that regard as well. The amendments, though, have been in fits and starts. And so I would compare this to the very beginnings of cannabis, like a legalized framework, but only for health purposes and, and patient access. And we're at the very beginnings where it's been in fits and starts. It's been uneven access. I don't, I don't have a good read right now as to, uh, I don't, I don't think we're moving as ambitiously as quickly as we ought to be in some ways. We, we've created right now a process where we're really very much focused on clinical trials. That makes sense in its own way. But when you look at the importance of the substance for certain people who, as you say, are, are suffering from anxiety issues or, or you know, there, there is a growing, in some ways, a, a, a more stronger base of evidence in relation to health benefits than 
cannabis in, in some ways. And so you have here a, a positive impact in people's lives. And, and what would be the negative impact in providing this availability for these individuals? So my, my, my advocacy has been, let's be granting these as a matter of course, let's create a framework as an exemption for the CDSA that is a pretty solid, you know, if you apply in these circumstances, you know, there's any health benefit here um, that it, you've got a doctor and you've got medical professionals that are signing on to it. Let's make sure we create a clearer path to, for patient access. I think we constantly get in the way of patient access. We, we even got in the way when, it, when we came to our legalized uh, cannabis regime. We've got an excise tax on, on medicinal cannabis. That makes no sense, right? So um, when it comes to this framework, I'm we've moved further than I think most people probably realize in some ways in terms of granting exemptions, but we haven't yet got to a place where there's a clear framework. I've got, there are dozens of, of people who have, are part of this, um, the company's Therasil that has communicated this to me, but there are dozens of people who are seeking exemptions that haven't received their exemptions yet. Uh, I've looked at some of the lists and it makes sense. If I were the minister, I would be granting these exemptions. So uh, can I, I, can worry, I, can I get an exemption? Is that possible? Is this... You would not be now, right. You would not be in a position no. to get an exemption right now. They're really looking at, so we went from, think of it. If you start at people who are able to access assisted dying, these are people who are oh, okay nearer the ends of their life and or have a debilitating condition that where they're grievously suffering. So if you start at that and then you move down, there are people who are, you know, their cancer has come back and they're really struggling. So there, there are, I would say right now we're still at a, we, we still require a very high threshold for access. And my point to the minister's office has been like, let's reduce that threshold. I think we're far ways off from someone like you to say, hey, like I need, I do it twice a month and I do it, you know, in a way that I would have used cannabis. I didn't have a doctor. Space exploration is really important in 2022. Well, I think well I have a frankly, like, look, I, I have Crohn's. I will say on the cannabis side, uh, shrooms, I have only done two or three times and did not stick. And probably because I was using them in a, in a context that was not sort of that exploration and was not in a calm environment and it was a very stressful thing when i was doing them um when i was in my 20s but concerts when it comes they're not to, a good place to do shrooms well right. like you know the <laughs> circumstances and setting matter a great deal and yeah. when it comes to cannabis though like i didn't have a doctor telling me here's your prescription but i when i was nauseous when i needed to stimulate my appetite when i really had you know had stomach pains in a, in a way that, that happens with crohn's i knew that this would help and and so I, I don't know, you know, should I have been a criminal for seeking that out? Obviously not. And so I, I feel the same way. I do think you're right to identify psilocybin as the obvious next substance that would be subject to a legalized framework. Probably, though, where we start, if we were to start more seriously with this and, and not go as slowly as we're going. So we're starting, but slow. Mm -hmm. I think more seriously, we would look to a patient access framework and say, how do we design uh, health set of rules that will ensure people who are in need, who have a prescription from a doctor or otherwise, are able to access this regime in the interest of their own health. And I think that would be yeah. the methodology that I would bring to bear to get something going sooner than later. Instead, what we're seeing, and it's in its, its own way, it makes sense to say, focus on clinical trials, focus on drugs that are going to have a drug identification number and that will be subject to these clinical trials. And then we are going to obviously approve those substances. So it won't be psilocybin 
absent a clinical trial that will be open to access for people who need it. So you might down the road, if you've got a doctor that you're working with, you might be able to twice a month access drug ABC that has gone through a clinical trial that is a derivative of psilocybin. And that's where the health, that's where health Canada sees this going. My view would be great, mm -hmm. go there. But in the meantime, make sure we are also opening access to people who are suffering and, and where this would help them. Right now, I mean, just <clears throat> again, full disclosure, I go to the First Nations community that I live right beside up near, um, like I live near the east gates of uh, Algonquin Park, um, just outside of Barry's Bay. <clears throat> and on Golden Lake, there's uh, a First Nations community. There's like, first of all, there's 18 weed dispensaries there and 12 of them sell mushrooms. And and look, when I when I say that I go to outer space, w what I mean by that actually is that it's 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 almost meditative for me to to use them. I do it by myself um because all, all these myths that people carry with them to adulthood about oh, you shouldn't do shrooms by yourself, shouldn't look in the mirror, all that kind of stuff. These are all head games that sort of make you feel um you, it it puts you in a bad state of mind and then you take these mushrooms and then all of a sudden your bad state of mind is amplified your ego is amplified your fears and everything is amplified <clears throat> but when i when i quit drinking i drank a lot and when i quit drinking about over 2 years ago um it brought a whole bunch of other problems into my life um anxiety um you know, I had, uh, I, I, I was taking ADHD medication that I stopped and I was getting these brain buzzes that are, um, uh, common with people who, to, who, who are coming off SSRIs for depression. And, um, and I actually wrote an article about this one day, not too long ago. Um, you know, I did this certain kind of mushroom and I was sitting in my room and it felt like hours. It was actually like a half an hour or something like that. And then it got really intense, my brain buzzes. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I shouldn't have done these shrooms. And then all of a sudden they stopped. And what was once with me for like almost two years hasn't come back. Now, I am not a doctor. I don't know the science behind any of this stuff. I don't know why doing six grams of magic mushrooms made my brain buzzes go away, but it did. And it just made me think, while that isn't a scientific, you know, that, that isn't a scientific conclusion based on some thesis, it did make me start to think about um, why governments are so gun shy to, to sort of introduce something like psilocybin to for therapeutic benefits you know like we just went through it with weed can't we skip the reefer madness portion of it and just head right to you know the clinics and i think we will skip the reefer madness portion it's just a question of will the government move quickly enough to provide access or will they move in a more bureaucratic way which is their want which is to say well before we provide widely available access we're actually going to go the clinical trial route and we're going to make sure that there's a din and it's and it will take look it will take time and it will be a derivative of psilocybin and i think we'll struggle with access in the interim as a result of that and we will also struggle in some ways with access because we will push it into you know your traditional pharmaceutical system as opposed to sort of a natural health product kind of system which um you know you you do though having said that you do have to be cognizant so you use it in a particular way you do have to be cognizant of the impact upon one's ability to function and in that in those moments and so it is intoxicating in its own way so the you do you do want strict rules around access i think but you, you don't want to then punish people who who are seeking access as responsible adults and and you certainly don't want to criminalize them and so how do you manage that and i think it gets back to this premise and we can talk about other drugs too but i think the premise has to be we should regulate drugs according to their respective harms and and, and potential harms and so here you have a substance which could be 
potentially quite harmful in the hands of if it's completely unregulated, if it uh, if it's in the hands of someone who has no education whatsoever about how to use it, and we don't know what the dosage of it is versus and what the what the the proper dose would be for the impact that you're seeking versus yeah. if it was a regulated marketplace, you would be you would be bringing to bear information to the consumer. You would be bringing to bear a dosage that look I, when I consume cannabis now, I like I don't consume a large amount of cannabis and I know exactly the dose that I'm getting. And like it, I'm not looking to get incredibly high. I, I'm looking at, you know, two milligrams like it's like it's, it's yeah. not a huge amount. And I know what I get now. In a way. Well, so, I mean, like, you're about to be in question period, so you can't take that much, right? <laughs> well, I look, but that's actually a really good point about, you know, the way also educating people about responsible use, right? Like, do we want to have conversations about abstinence or do we want to have conversations about responsible use? And some hmm. substances we're not going to have credibly have a conversation about responsible morphine morphine use in a recreational <laughs> setting but yeah. in your case are we when we're talking about psilocybin yeah we probably should have a, a conversation about responsible use because people are already using it as you are many people are um and and as you say others are microdosing what are the ways we can talk about responsible use and how do we bring evidence to bear to make sure we have a rational adult conversation about this instead of pushing yeah, it all I, away i agree and listen like we we have and i have a prescription for adderall and I got to tell you, as a person who used to throw raves, it's not that far different from meth. <laughs> it really isn't. And it's like, so when I like, you know, I, I, I actually just lowered my dose. I told the doctor to, I'm like, you got to cut my dosage in half. Like I'm climbing the walls here. Like, I don't understand why I even have this high of a dosage. And so he, first of all, he fought me on it and then he did it. And then I felt, I, I felt after like a few days of a weird I guess it's withdrawal or something. I, I felt a lot better. And now I feel like I'm at the dosage that I can handle with, you know the 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 problems or the ADHD or whatever that I have. Um. Anyways, that's the, the, good. But that's I a good example because in a regulated, in a therapeutic, regulated setting, which is what psilocybin would would absolutely start with, you would have a situation where you would be in consultation with your doctor, and and more importantly, and this is what the the psychiatry, you know, the psychology to it is. It, it is most as I understand the science and the evidence of the growing evidence, it is most helpful. So you do it on your own, but it is most helpful in terms of opening up one's mind to then be amenable to uh, psychotherapy. And so you, you see people that whether it's addressing addiction issues or real PTSD trauma or otherwise, but it is opening up the ability for psychotherapy to be even more successful and impactful. And how do we not want to advance that as quickly as possible when you've got psychotherapists saying, hey, like give us access. And when I look at it, I go, yeah, let's do the clinical trial route, all good. But in the meantime, let's open up access that we've got to psychotherapists to make sure we advance therape you know, the therapeutics and health of Canadians as quickly as we can. Yeah, you opened this segment by by talking about the right setting, and um, and it's totally true. I, I'm, <clears throat> you know, I'm 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 totally fine being around people on it. I just prefer it on my own. But I had a guy call me once. He had a really bad problem, and uh, I was like in the middle of a trip, just passing Jupiter when he called, <laughs> and uh, and I talked to him for like two hours because I I, I have also noticed over the years that there's something about it that allows you to harness like a wider vocabulary, a wider understanding, like a, a greater in-depth knowledge of why you have emotions that you have and things like that. So, and you know, and it sounds like cloud talk to a lot of people that don't ever do any type of substance, but um, anyways, I'm hopeful that it will, it will uh, materialize sometime soon. I'm going to let you go. But before I do, I just, I realized the last time you were on the Blundell show and I never got a chance to tell you that, or maybe I did and I just forget because you know, 
shrooms and weed. Um, but this is <laughs> this is a picture of you. It's a nice picture. You look good. I don't know what the occasion was. Was that Canada Day? Is that why you're wearing Canada, that uh, god Canada awful suit? <laughs> probably Canada Day. Got to figure. I don't wear that suit yeah. too often. It was either Canada no. or we did have a parade at one point for Penny Alexiak. Uh, when oh. uh, when she won a yeah. boatload of medals because she's from the beaches, and so we uh, it may have been that, but I probably probably that's Canada Day. I don't I don't break out the red suit too often. I joke that I think... sometimes politics is about serious issues and ideas, and other times it's about about wearing ridiculous parades. Yeah, yeah, apparently it is. <laughs> I mean, I, this sounds like this sounds like a like a like like I'm like literally kissing your ass. But also, this person lived in the beaches for a while, and you might remember this guy's going to play you in a movie one day. I mean, come on. Look at guys, everyone at home. It's like it's like looking in a mirror. Look you at got that. More hair than I do. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. No, but it was good to talk to you, buddy. Um, listen. Um, I I love having you on the show. Um, I hope you'll come back. Um, you're 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 one of the good ones. You know, don't want to sound racist, but you're one you're one of the good ones when it comes to politicians. And um, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I hope I was more informative than Maxine Bernier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got called a Nazi for having Maxine Bernier on. You see what I mean? No, you, you, you were. You didn't once go like this. I am doing politics differently, James. And I was just like, I was gonna get yeah. He he is coming to my house to smoke a joint. We are with both me. doing um, politics differently. Very. Yeah, differently. Oh God, that's it. You're out of here. Goodbye. <laughs> All right, Nate. Thanks, man. I appreciate, it, buddy. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, literally one of my favorite politicians, if not my favorite politician. Um, I did vote for him the first time that he um, that he ran for office. Listen, I I mean the just having that conversation, just so open about um, talking about what we can do with uh, with with drugs as far as a, a therapeutic sense goes, is something that I think we should all be sort of looking at right now in in a very adult way. So um, that was Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, liberal MP for Beaches East York. And uh, today's a doubleheader, guys. In three hours, 12, one, two hours, uh, at one o'clock, Kareem Asad will be on and we will be talking about why I'm in love with Kareem Asad. Now, we'll be talking about politics, seeing what she's up to now, what she's going to be doing in the next uh, few months, and some of the hypocrisy uh, between how we view the war that's happening now versus the wars that happened at the turn of the millennium. So that should be fun. Um, thanks for watching and we'll see you again soon. Okay, guys. Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. I wanna live at 
Everywhere the imagination dares, it's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.